So today we are going to continue this deep dive into NDEs, into near-death experiences. But before I realized in our last class on NDEs, that before we start getting into the nitty-gritty, I want to talk today on the interconnectedness of all realities. So today I want you to keep in mind that while that while simple speculation for the most part is meaningless except as a pure mental exercise there are many people who find the ideas of NDEs near death experiences and exploring these ideas quite intriguing quite inspiring, and for a lot of people, it's even comforting. In times of of deep mourning, many of us find that knowledge of what occurs to the beloved soul is valuable and soothing. So from a finite perspective, from the finite perspective of, of reality, of physicality, of spirituality. They operate on different planes of existence. And the divide or the chasm between the two worlds is irreconcilable and it's completely uncrossable. Now, there is much validity to this assumption No living being, no living being, no matter their experience, no matter their expertise, no matter their genius, can truly approximate what the afterlife really is like. It's important for us to understand this reality. We're having conversations about things that we truly, truly can't fathom. Even even the greatest amongst our people Moses, there's a a beautiful Sifri in Deuteronomy that says that Moses declined to offer the details with regards to what's awaiting us in the hereafter. But I'm going to say and. It's also true that creation was originally patterned in a way that the divide can be traversed and the partition can be crossed. Albeit for a short period of time. All reality, whether it's in this world, whether it's in the next world, whether it's spiritual, whether it's emotional, whether it's mental, whether it's physical, All realities are a unified whole. This is a fundamental truth within Kabbalistic teachings. All realities are a unified whole. All universes are interlinked. They're interlaced. And what begins as a lively spirit 
through the process of creation, eventually manifest as seemingly inert matter. Rectification is really a culmination of a process that begins as pure divine energy, which then becomes three-dimensional concretized objects, upper inner realities and lower external realities. They're all seamlessly interwoven and symbolically interconnected. So, revelation. Revelation is a word that's really Jewish, though it's been stolen by other faiths. It means that it's a means by which the transcendent becomes available to the imminent. Revelation is a means by which the transcendent becomes available to the imminent. The Torah, which according to our belief, was given at Sinai, is revelation par excellence. Through Torah, we are empowered to to pierce the veil, to lift the screen, to, to take a peek into a reality that is both far beyond and deep within us. That is both, think about that a second, that is both far beyond and deep within us. The transmission of what we're going to call divine wisdom is present. It's accessible. And throughout history, there were and there always are those highly sensitive and spiritual individuals who are able to tap into the realms of existence that are beyond the immediate. According to our tradition, especially according to Kabbalistic tradition, the echo, what is called the echo of Sinai, never ceased. It's only us, humans, individuals. We have distanced ourselves. We have alienated, we have alienated ourselves to a point where we can't hear the voice. But there are some amongst us, some evolved, some extraordinary souls, and occasionally some ordinary souls that have extraordinary moments. And they're able to relive the Sinai experience. They can hear, they can see, they can be receptive to the deeper truths that are otherwise unnoticed, that are otherwise undetectable. Dreams. I'm not going to get into it in detail. I know I'm opening a Pandora's box by saying that word. Dreams are another, though I would say about dreams that they're a little more obscure, but they are another mode of acquiring a transcendent insight, particularly with regard 
to the soul's journey in the afterlife. Death and sleep are closely related. They're closely aligned with each other. The the ancient Greek philosophers, they used to call sleep death sister. The, the sages of the Talmud would say, this is a Talmud that in our teaching of Rachot, that we're going to be talking about very soon, they would say that sleep is one sixtieth death. That sleep is a, a mini form of death. That while the person is asleep, major aspects of their soul depart from the body and they may roam into a deeper or a higher dimension of reality. And during these nocturnal journeys, it is possible for the higher levels of the soul to inform the lower ones that remain in this world, that remain earthbound of alternate realities. So whether the dreamer may register enough to be consciously or subconsciously aware of all of this depends on, I would say, the spiritual development of the dreamer how integrated they are with the various aspects of themselves. For those who are more existentially integrated, which means, according to Kabbalah, that their external expressions of self, their their thought, their, their speech, their action, which are called the garments of the soul, they're harmoniously aligned with the innermost desires of the soul. So if their garments of the soul, their thought, speech, and action are harmoniously aligned with their innermost desires, these people will have a conscious awareness of the prophetic teachings brought down in their dreams. They'll be able to experience that level of I'm going to quote-unquote prophecy. I'm using this very, very loosely. But the idea of prophecy meaning seeing the future. Others, maybe you can relate to this more, have more of a intuitive awareness, which possibly can be less clear to them, but still meaningful. In Kabbalah, collective and individual revelations at Sinai, and for that matter, throughout the ages, whether through prophecy, what is called Ruach HaKodesh, R-U-A-C-H, H-A-K-O-D-E-S-H, Ruach HaKodesh, which means divine intuition, inspired dreams that we just spoke about, or anything similar to that. These are the foundations. These are the sources of the Torah's view of the afterlife. 
according to this view, this body of knowledge is not folklore. It's not hyperbole. It's not suggestions or speculation. But these are teachings that we understand to have been verified by the direct transmitters only to be later transcribed and documented as written testimony. And from this perspective, we are dealing with a body of wisdom that is sourced in our tradition, that is sourced in our teachings, and that is based upon inspired, and again, I'm quote-unquote, prophetic experiences of individuals in alternate states of consciousness and expanded modes of knowing. And I think based on this, based on this understanding of the nature of our material, we can now continue to explore near-death experiences. I wanted you to, to just step out of it for a second to explain, because I'm not the kind of person who would be teaching this. I'm not going to uh, start talking about the ethereal and, and out-of-body experiences. I've never had an NDE. I've never had an out-of-body experience. And the truth is, by nature, I'm not really the kind of person who really believes it. What fascinated me about the exploration is that when one person tells you a story, you say, okay, fine, Meshige. I mean, I love you with all my heart and soul. I'll bet a Meshige. When the second person says, okay, fine, I found two Meshigoyen. And then you have a third person who talks to, talks to you about it. But then you start seeing interwoven, very similar experiences. Okay, fine. I realized at first there's a whole world of Meshigoyen that I love with all my heart and soul. And then you have five and six and 10 and 15. And as a rabbi, somehow when you have a near-death experience or some kind of existential experience, you have to go running to the rabbi. And so over the years, and I'm saying over the trajectory of maybe 15 years now, I don't know if all rabbis hear this. I can't speak for other rabbis, but I have heard this enough that it's piqued my interest enough to try to want to know more. It went from, as we say in Yiddish, a bond of Mishigoyim. It went from, how do you, I don't know how to translate that. It went from a, a, a group of crazies. A bunch of crazies. That's a what bunch of saying. crazies. A bond of Mishigoyim. To, there's got to be more. The, 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 my scientific head started seeing the synapses started kind of connecting, like there's something going on here. I know these people didn't speak to each other. So there's not a conspiracy going on. These people are having experiences. And so it caused me to not only look within the Kabbalistic teachings, but to look throughout the Jewish teachings and see what is the history? What is this all about? What is, what's going on here? And so what I want to start presenting, I don't know if I'll get into it all today, but I want to start presenting is 
the traditional Torah sources on this. I went and researched and found this teaching within traditional Torah sources, which means that for those people to whom the, the, the study of Kabbalah is. We'll be back after a quick break. Are you tired of swiping right on every dating app out there and still getting nowhere? Are you convinced that you'll forever be alone, surrounded by nothing but uh, cats and empty takeout containers? <laughs> Hi, I'm Aliza Ben Shalom, the host of the new show, Jewish Matchmaking, which you can find on Netflix. And I'm the love rabbi, Rabbi Yisrael Bernath, and we're inviting you to join us for Matchmaker Matchmaker. Each week, we'll answer one of your pressing relationship questions, from how to get over your ex to how to deal with your partner's annoying habits. So if you're ready to laugh, uh, cry, or maybe even find love, then tune in to Matchmaker Matchmaker, and it's available now wherever you listen to your podcasts. A little out there. I wanted to try to ground it in traditional sources. So I want to kind of open up the book, so to speak, and start exploring this today. I don't know if I'll finish it today, but I'd like to start exploring it today. So I found a number of sources that talk about tales of resurrection. Incidences where someone returns to life from death. They were dead, or for practical purposes, they were deemed dead, and they came back to life. And there are a number of these descriptions that are written in the Torah, and later in the Talmud. And in these events, the prophets... The sages, they performed the impossible. They resurrected, again, another word that was taken from our tradition and used by others. They resurrected those who have passed on. Now, while there's a possibility to interpret these incidences as, as cases of resuscitation, as opposed to resurrection, I understand that. I still have a science brain, which means as I read these, as I look into these, I'm taking them with a grain of salt. But reviving, as opposed to, let's say, rebirthing, traditionally, many of these events were viewed as resurrections. Beyond the resurrections, there are also recordings of people in the Torah both written and oral, who have encountered what can be referred to as near-death experiences, what we've been speaking about, NDEs. In one Talmudic story, a sage was so deathly ill that his soul departed from his body. Though the Talmud says he did not actually die, later on, when he resumed consciousness, he recounted what he saw. 
he spoke of a, of an inverted universe where everything appeared to be the opposite of the way reality to see, seems to be here on earth. Humble people in this inverted universe were placed on pedestals, while those who are normally considered superior in our society were seated below. At which point he heard a heavenly voice declare, Honorable is the one who enters these realms of existence with Torah wisdom at his disposal. This is a, a Talmud from Baba Batra. There's another Talmud, the story of Rabbi Yossi, who was once paying a visit to his sick neighbor when he heard a voice proclaiming, a soul has come in front of me prior to its destined time. Woe to those neighbors in his village who have not done anything to help him. Sensing the truth of this message, Rabiosi hurried and placed the juice of a dried fig on the sick man's lips, and slowly the man was nurtured back to life. When the man recovered, he told Rabiosi that his soul had in fact left his body and was brought, brought before the throne of the king. And he says, Rabbi Yossi, I would have stayed there. But the master of the universe desired that you be given the opportunity to have the merit of restoring my health. Questions, comments, please. Okay, I can continue if no one has anything to say. Of course, I already have a question. <laughs> Going back to that story with you, with Rabbi Yossi. So you're saying that Hashem, God said, no, you can't stay here now because the rabbi is supposed to. I don't understand that part of the let me, story. Let me let me give you a, a, an explanation to this that maybe you can understand. Okay. There's a great debate in the Torah teachings as to who is more important in this world, the philanthropist or the needy. Because without the needy, the philanthropist can't be philanthropic. So who's more important? The one who has to suffer in this world in order to allow the giver to be a giver. It's, 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 a, it's, very, it's very Jewish and very Talmudic and, and turning uh, the whole thing on its head. But it's true. If there's no one to give to, you can't give. And so there are many experiences of which and I'm sure because we're all highly sensitive here, we all have those moments where we know that it was for us to see because there's something we should do about it. And we have a choice in that moment. Either step up and fulfill our purpose or ignore it. 
And I'm sure there are many people who step up and do something about it, and many who ignore it. But the Talmud will specify that the reason why that experience happened to you, the reason why you saw it is because there's something you can do about it. You got the answer, Cheryl? Yes, I do. So the fig juice from the dried fig really wasn't important, but that was the impetus that the rabbi thought helped this person come back to life so he could share his story with the rabbi. Exactly. And in the, and in the metaphor, there's lots of different types of fig juice. Lots of different. I don't know what the fig juice of a dried fig would look like because it was a dried fig. There's no juice. So indeed, maybe it really is a metaphor. We'd have to dig a little deeper into, into what that means or just let it be and let it be the story that is told and the narrative that we experience. But we all have dried fig juice somewhere. Juliana. Thank you. I've got two quick questions. The first one is, could it be that on a higher level we can't perceive the giver and the receiver are one? The giver and the receiver are one. You're 100% right. It's, oh, wow. it's obvious. They are completely one. How is that? Because the world is made up of giving and receiving. Mm -hmm. You can't give to, to thin air. And you can't receive from thin air. The giver is the conduit of God. And the receiver is the conduit of God. They're both part of the same wholeness. They're two halves of a singular whole. It's a secret of a of a of a successful relationship, right? Thank you. What's your other point, Julie? Uh, thank you. Um, can we connect the dried fig remedy to Adam and Eve and the tree of knowledge? Because the rabbis say that the fruit was a a, a fig because it was fig leaves that they covered themselves with. It could have been a fig, it could have been a grape, it could have been an etrog. There's a couple of different opinions, but I like that. For those who, who, who have the opinion that it's a fig, there you go. You see where we're, again, it's, it's, all, it's all connected. And I think you're seeing that. And I like that, creating those connections. So thank you for that. Okay. Alessandra. So just a side note, based on uh, what Julian just said, when I was in Israel once, the lady told me when you give your hand is open and therefore you can receive. If you never give, you can never receive. Oh, that's really beautiful. That's so, you're opening your hands. You're opening your hands. The giver and the receiver have the same experience physically. I love that, right? The receiver is taking and the giver is opening. They both have to open their hands. And and when your hand is open, you can also receive. If if oh. if you never, you'll never receive. And those of us who are givers, we know how much we receive when we give. Mm -hmm. In a way, we even receive more than the, than those who received, because those who receive may only give receive physically, but we receive on so many other levels by giving. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
Love that. So, love I, that. I want to hold I love, that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I'm receiving that teaching from you. Yeah, well, it's uh, Julian that put it back on the table. It just, yeah. remind, it just reminded me. Uh, I have a question. Would you say that a child is, is I'm, I'm seeing a child as being more aligned in his garments, right? Hence, that's why sometimes you can observe in some children a, a connection to the other levels of of uh, truth uh, that we don't have? Yes. There's actually a teaching in the Talmud that during the nine months of gestation, while the fetus is in the womb, they study Torah with God. And so, I mean, the, the Talmud says, the angel taps them on the lips, that's it, we have that little uh, thing between our lips, and then they forget it, they come into this world, but there's no question that it's it's nostalgic for them. It's familiar to them, and so children are much closer to the source. That's why we see that level of purity. You can't help yourself, but 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 see the the infusion of purity that a, a, a child brings into the world. So absolutely. Thank you. When you were speaking, I I remembered something that happened with Naomi. She was maybe three and a half, and it was 9.30 uh, on a Saturday evening, and she started saying, Mom, the lady died. You need to call the police. And I said, what lady? We're at home. We're, there's nothing. Nobody died on TV. Nothing. No, no, Mom, Mom, the lady died. You have to call the police. Mom, the lady died. You have to call the police. The next day, I learned that at the same time in Israel, her great-grandmother passed. Wow. At the exact same time. And she was telling me the lady died. And wow. it wasn't that it was the lady. That 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 fusion of mind of of thought, speech, and action is much clearer for a child. Unfortunately, as we navigate this world, we were, we were removed from that. And our goal is to kind of go back to that. I'm not saying we should go back to the inner child. We're not going 40 in here. But definitely go back to a sense of purity, to a sense of connectedness, of to a sense of, of, of integratedness. So we can use our adult perspectives with the, with the purity of the child. I think that's part of our goal in this world. The last thing, and then I let you continue. I, I find that since somewhat a year ago in this class, I said, I will try not to lie, not even the smallest lie, you know, about the glass is empty. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that, since I started doing that, my, um, you know, sometimes you lie for convenience. It's not because you intend to lie to somebody that it's so much easier, right? And since I stopped doing that, my I, I feel that, the, my behavior, my speech, and my thought are a lot more aligned than they were before. Right, because you're living in a world of honesty. You're living in a world of, of truism. Truth is always the same constant. The moment you add to it or take away from it, it's false. Truth is always a constant in all times and all places. And so it, it, lying it automatically takes all the truths and makes them false. 
and everything is messy around you. Exactly. So a liar yeah. is, is so busy trying to cover their their path that they can't even be creative and move forward in the world. It's very hard. So I think that's a that's a very very powerful, powerful teaching. This is fantastic. Thank you. I'm going to go into so for those of you who took my initial course on the Kabbalah of the afterlife, some of this will find you'll find familiar. Though I'm going to revisit the 10 stages after death. But I want to deep dive into each of them. So I don't know how many we'll get through today. But we're going to take our time through them, understand them, and try to make sense of all this. Again? Excuse me. Sure. Before last week, when you did a whole thing, on death in honor memory of Chava's dad, you were talking about NDEs and you gave us 10 points of that and said you were going to deep dive into each one of those. We're going to, this class is going to become circular now. Okay. So we're going to go deep dive into those and we're going to use, we're, we're going to kind of interconnect it all. You'll, you'll see how it works. It's going to take a couple of weeks, but I think uh, you'll see how it works. Some of it may be familiar to you because we've been going through this for quite a number of weeks. A year. A, a year, year this month. A year this month. We've been January going through 6th, it. I think, if you go back and look, is when you started your class. Okay, well, I think we have another year to go. At least. <laughs> right. And it doesn't seem like anyone's going anywhere, so thank you. <laughs> um, so you'll see the interconnectedness. But I want to, if you don't understand something, let's take our time and really clarify it. So stage one, again, this is not linear, this is fluid, we'll call it circular, but we have to, in a process of stages, we have to allow this kind of linear fashion. And within the linear, we could see the fluid and we can see the interconnectedness. So stage one. Stage one we call being aware of death. Once... Once the soul leaves the body, it experiences a tremendously heightened measure of awareness, both of itself as well as everything else that is going on in relation to the lifeless body. So remember, we're talking about the stages of death here. But the only way we know these stages of death is through inter- is through NDEs. That's how we know them. Through what? Through near-death experiences. Right? Nobody died and came back to tell us. Besides people who have had, who have had NDEs. So a lot of this knowledge comes from a collective of people who have experienced it and come back to tell us a story. So the first stage is this heightened measure of awareness, both of itself, as well as everything else that is going on in relation to its lifelessness or its its lifeless body. Even if the near-death experiences that the person had is not an indication of an afterlife, it's still a peculiar phenomenon 
that is scientifically troubling to explain. We would expect that consciousness would begin to slow and shut down as the physical brain kind of deadens and unravels. What's amazing is the exact opposite occurs. Reality appears to become more real. Perception is more vivid. And there's a total expansiveness of consciousness. And on a metaphysical level, this can be understood as a result of the soul's unhinging itself from the constriction of the material brain. You see, the soul is eternal. The soul is what thinks. It's the soul that sees. It's the soul that hears. It's the soul that speaks. While it's in the physical body, it's using the brain and the eyes and the ears and the mouth. So now the soul doesn't have to be limited by the physical body. And once the soul leaves the body, the expansion of awareness is no longer filtered through the ego or the sensory functions. That's why this awareness is completely lucid. It's completely transparent. That's why, according to Jewish law, according to the Talmud, everything that is spoken of in front of what we call the lifeless body, the soul perceives, the soul, in a sense, watches and surveys what transpires from a distance as if viewing another person's body. And even after burial, for the first three days, according to the Talmud and according to Kabbalah, for the first three days, the soul hovers over the body and observes. Wow. So the most heightened awareness is that immediate, that, that immediate disconnection, which is why it's so important that for those of us who are there in the room, that we make sure that our words are pure. All of a sudden, everyone just says, oh, they're gone. Let's start talking about the funeral. No, we'll leave the room to talk about the funeral. Because they can hear and experience everything in a more real way than even in this world. And that continues for three days. That's why we try to get to the burial as fast as possible within Judaism. This is stage one. Questions? Rabbi, I have a question. So, like, that sounded more like a peaceful death as far as, like, being in a room. What about, like, more sudden and tragic deaths? Not even that that's, like, a great description of it, but, like, accidents or... You know, like, um, you know, like in war yeah. and things, do they still hover over that mm. area? Yes. The soul is not affected by what happens to the body. 
if heaven forbid, if something tragic or terrible that happens, the soul is still intact. Whether or not the body is. Okay. Do they still like, are they still like present in that area? As yes. far as like, okay. So like a soul would experience like the war in a more intense and real way than like the physical bodies that are still there. Correct. Someone I, someone who was once uh, in a terrible car accident told me that they were there and they could see everything going on from above. They were watching their lifeless body being taken care of by paramedics and, and bystanders. They experienced the whole thing, but it didn't do anything to their soul. They were totally still there, intact. Just the body wasn't. So as physical bodies, I was thinking about this this morning, as physical bodies that are still part of that situation, can you, for lack of a better term, absorb things from like the injured body or soul, like leaving the body? And then like maybe that can transpire into like survivor's guilt and kind yes. of holding on to peak experiences in that situation. Kelsey, you hit the nail on the head. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate you clarifying that. You clarified it. I didn't do anything. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> Alexandra, please. So uh, thank you, Kelsey, for bringing that up to mind because my, my grandparents both died in a car accident. Um, and when the bureau was supposed to take place, the, the police came with the with the pathologist because of insurance issues and they stopped the funeral. And my father was able to bury their, his parents only two weeks later. Um, what happens then to the soul, since you mentioned that the, the soul sticks with the body three days after burial? So that's... You can give me the way, Raul. I, I can take I it. No, I want to be sensitive to it because there's other people in the room who may have had similar experiences. So I'm going to tell you the truth, but I want to be sensitive to it. And I'm going to, before I answer this question, I want to just say that the soul is pure and not always is everything within our control and nobody did anything wrong. When, when the coroner has to deal with a, an autopsy. It, it's, it's not within our control. We try our best, and I've been involved in situations where we really encourage them, and they know good and well that we want to bury that body as fast as possible. Sometimes it's not practically possible, and in a situation of, let's say, homicide, or where they have to catch someone who is on the loose, and they need to really do what is proper, which I believe they they try their best to do what is proper in these situations. We don't have a choice and it's beyond our control. We try our best. We know what Jewish law is, but sometimes living in a particular place, look, there's a big difference between the way that Israel, the Jewish state, deals with homicides and outside of Israel. It's a big difference. They know that because they are very well aware of Jewish law and how important this is to us. Where in, in other places, 
there isn't that same sensitivity. That said, it's very painful for them because yes, the soul is in that three-day limbo would, would have lasted two weeks. So we try our best to do what we have to do at the right time. Thank you. Any other questions? Let, let me add, if I may, that my mom is a psychologist, and she's done a few, um, um, well, the word vanishes. Um, and and while she's very, she's very respectful, uh, they are as 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 a group well, very respectful of of the people they they work with, even though they're dead. Thank you, and that's good to hear. Okay, let's go on. I'm curious to know more. I think. Um, because it's already uh, 9.51, I know there's nine more. We're going to continue next week, but I would love to hear your nugget, what you're taking away. We just did stage one today. I want to allow this to be, because we're not going to have enough time to finish stage two today. So I want to I want to uh, acknowledge that. So Susie, since you spoke up, what's, what's, your, what's your golden nugget today? What are you taking away from this? Uh, well, I, I can't wait to hear the other nine. I know I took your class a few years ago, um, but a refresher is, I'm ready for a refresher. But I also want to say that at the beginning of class, when we were talking about um, what happens with the process of death is um, and the giver and the receiver, and I, I just want to say that I believe, I'm speaking for myself, but I think all of us who attend this class, we this speaks to our soul probably because we're more in touch with this and that's what keeps us coming back um and yeah like it it nourishes my soul it speaks to my soul i feel like some of it i have experienced um but i have never put it into words and this information puts it into words yeah and i don't know if it's just I'm an older soul, or if I'm just intuitive like that, but it, it it really speaks to me, a lot of the things that you say. Okay, Elena. I, I don't really have anything to add, so I'm just going to pass it to Cheryl. Thank you. Thanks, Elena. Um, I liked, well, I highlighted, the truth is always a constant. And if you add or subtract it, it becomes a lie. Mm -hmm. And I just, I'm thinking about that a lot. Just because a lot of people always say, but, you know, and then they add to whatever they're going to say, and that but kind of negates it. And I don't know, I was just giving a lot of thought to that. And that sleep is one sixtieth of death. I found that a little fascinating. I don't sleep very well anyway, so I'm probably half dead to begin with. But 
So that was my takeaway today. Um, Kelsey. Thank you, Cheryl. Um, I think I'm going to be pondering a bit about what you said about the truth. And then my nugget is the answer to my question that I asked earlier. Um, and just thank you all for the safe place, because that's not a question I would ask everywhere. Um, and Alessandra. Thank you. So me, I, I, um, I go back to the reason you saw it is because you can do something about it. And um, made a connection in my head about purpose. Now me, since she was a child, like since she was able to express herself, always had trouble with the homeless. Um, every time we walked by an homeless, she had to give them food or money. Uh, or if we would walk past, she would bring me back, give him something. And now when we were in New York, since we're not really in the streets of Montreal every day now that we were in New York and she saw the homeless, she really told me that it hurts her to, to see people in that situation. So I'm thinking, you know, is that her purpose? Um, to help people in in these situations because the reason you saw it is because you have something to do about it. And she obviously feels very close to this level of pain. So that, that was my, I, I connected that sentence to my daughter and um, that's what I'm sharing now with you. And let me see, Jill. I'm not sure if Jill can speak because she said she was getting on a plane and was having a hard time with her microphone. So, I hope she can. Maybe Julian? Uh, thank you. Um, I've only had two thoughts so far. One is, I'm curious if this 10 stages of death corresponds with the Ten Sephirot in some way. Um, and the other thought was about the Ruach HaKodesh, if that also has different, or, well, actually, there's two thoughts there. If it's one of many stages or levels, perhaps even ten again, and the other thought was if there's stages or levels within it, Maybe there's more than one type of level of Ruach HaKodesh, maybe even back to the 10 again. So those, those are the only thoughts I've had at the moment. Um, uh, I think Hami's uh, the last one. Ah, Hami, Hami. Oh, Fami, sorry, sorry. Hami. Good morning. So, so uh, I will go back. I want to go back to the giving things. So, it I think, and uh, I studied it a little bit. It's not just about uh, your purpose, because like 
there is something called Ainara, the bad eye. And 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 some and if you study Torah, some of the sages say 99% of people who die in the cemetery is because of Ainara. So it is better that when you have the opportunity to give, to give, because because first of all, it's not yours. So it was like we, we people think we live in a, in a, in democracy, but no, we live in a kingdom here. So everything belongs to him. So when you have the opportunity to give, to give, because like it will save you from other things that you cannot see. So that's all. The, that's all what I want to say. But it's 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 all over the Torah. I mean, we. They say 98% of people who, who die is because of Ainara. So you better give or you face bad outcomes. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you all. I'm excited next week to continue this, uh, this look at uh, the process of 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 leaving this world and looking at it through these NDEs. So remember, and I think this was the question that some of you had from before, is that the what we're talking about is the process of the soul leaving this world, but we only know about it through near-death experiences. And so again, it's not linear, it's fluid. And so we have nine more to cover, and we're going to continue this next week. With that. I wish you all a wonderful, wonderful day, and we'll move on to Talmud. On time. <laughs> Actually, I'm you're one minute. Have a minute. A minute. We can keep you one extra minute. I'm sure. Have a lovely <laughs> day. <laughs> Bye. Hi, Rabbi Bernath here. I have some great news for you. My popular four-week course, Kabbalah for Everyone, is available right now for free for the next 50 people who download it. All you have to do is go to www.theloverabbi.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and you're going to see the download button right there. In this course, I talk about the Kabbalistic secrets to relationships, to wealth, to happiness, and balance. This special offer has been dedicated in loving memory of Ellie Dorfman. I look forward to hearing from you and hope you enjoy the course. Now on to today's episode.